Genesis 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Good morning. I love you guys, and I am glad to be here with you. I want to invite you to keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing a sermon series, working our way through Matthew's gospel. Matthew is one of the four New Testament biographies of Jesus that tells us about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're making our way through Matthew's gospel And week by week, we're learning who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Here in today's passage, we learn that following Jesus is tied to the humility of a child. This passage begins with a bit of a conflict or a collision over greatness. In verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus saying, who is, not just who is great, but who is the greatest? They don't just want to know, theoretically, what would make somebody great. They want to know, what could make me greater than him? There's a competitive spirit in this question. They come to Jesus and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's a collision. A kind of collision that we know by experience will always lead both to strife with other people and results in nonstop strife within our own souls. When you're in a group of people 
And notice, this is a group of Jesus' disciples. They've been journeying together for a few years. A, a group of people maybe about the same size as your small group, which may be in this church you've been a part of for a couple years. And, and here's this small group size group of people who know each other well. They've been living their lives near each other and with each other. They've built deep relationships. But now they're beginning to ask this question. What could make me greater than him? What could make me the greatest of all of these people? And in this collision over greatness... In this conflict around greatness, Jesus needs to speak to his followers and he needs to challenge them to reimagine what true greatness really is. You know, there's kind of a leadership fable that we tell in our culture. It's been around for at least 100 years. I don't know its origin, but a leadership fable about somebody who spends his or her whole career climbing a ladder, one rung at a time, getting higher and higher and higher and higher, maybe spending years working hard to get higher on this ladder than the other people ahead or above. But when he or she gets to the top of the ladder, the leadership fable asks us, what if you look around and you realize this place I've been climbing toward for years isn't where I set out to arrive at in the first place anyway. What if I've spent my whole life climbing a ladder to get to the wrong location? What if I've spent my whole career trying to pass other people to get to a destination that isn't worth getting to anyway? And in a sense, Jesus challenges his disciples in this passage to say as you're busy trying to rank yourself against one another trying to figure out not just what is greatness but who is the greatest among us as you're busy trying to figure out what could make me greater than that person over there what if you're expending all of your energy climbing a ladder to a destination that isn't worth arriving at what if the ladder's been leaning against the, lo- the wrong wall the whole time you've been climbing? As Jesus challenges us to reimagine what true greatness really is, he's going to do that in a few ways. First of all, Jesus gives us a picture of true greatness as humility. He gives us a picture of true greatness as humility, beginning in verse 2. Look there with me if you would. And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus challenges us to reimagine greatness by giving us a picture of humility in the face of a child. The word humility 
in the Greek language that the New Testament is written in refers to a mindset. It's not so much an emotion. It's not an action. But it's a mindset, and specifically, it's the mindset of a servant as opposed to the mindset of a boss. But Jesus here in Matthew 18 isn't interested in lecturing his disciples about the meaning of words. He wants to do something that will reach deeper than a lecture about the meaning of words. And so as he challenges them to reimagine greatness, he gives them a picture. He finds a kid. Maybe we'd picture someone six years old. And he calls the child over. He says, come over here. And you can almost imagine Jesus putting his hand on the boy's shoulder saying, you want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here it is. Now, it's a beautiful thing that Jesus has just said, but I think it stung the disciples just a little bit, right? Because the disciples in their competitive spirit and their drive to climb the ladder and their drive to be greater than others, they weren't wanting to hear that a kid is the greatest. They were wanting to hear what can make me the greatest. And so you can almost imagine one of the disciples pulling the kid aside and saying, Hey kid, what did you do to get Jesus to say that you're great? And what would the kid say? Kid, where did you go to seminary? What's a seminary? (laughs) Kid, how many people have you led to Jesus? Which one is Jesus? (laughs) Kid, how have you got rid of sin in your life? I haven't. Kid, How much have you given to the poor? I don't have anything to give to the poor anyway. And you can imagine the the inquisition going on and on. Kid, what did you do to get Jesus to say that you're a picture of greatness? And maybe at the end of it, the disciples just give up and say, Well then, kid, how come you got to stand in the middle? And the kid says, Because he called me. And that's the bottom of the story, right? What has this kid done in order to earn his status of greatness? Nothing. He's done absolutely nothing except respond to the gracious invitation of Jesus to come. And in this moment, Jesus says, this is a picture of true greatness as it's esteemed in the kingdom of heaven. And doesn't this fit with our understanding of what a child is anyway? I mean, what does it mean to be a child? At one level, it just means to be profoundly needy, right? 
Any parents? Come on. I know you're here. Parents of newborns, can I get an amen? Those little, those little guys and girls are profoundly needy. They're profoundly needy. They're profoundly loved at the same time. They're profoundly needy. And so if you talk to a kid and you try to figure out, kid, how did you get your food today? Someone gave it to me. How did it get into your house? Someone bought it for me. How did it get prepared? Someone prepared it for me. How did it get to your table? Someone set the table for me. You see, to be a child is to live in this experience in which everything is received. Everything is given. To be a child is to live in this experience where everything is a gift. And isn't this a picture of greatness in the kingdom of heaven? A perfect picture of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. To be a child is not to have a resume that you can fall back on and say, look at all I've done. To be a child is not to have a status such that you can look down on others. To be a child is to be a person of profound needs. Who is loved. With a father and a future. And this is what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean building a resume. It doesn't mean building a list of what you can fall back on, what you can point to. It doesn't mean being high enough that you can look down on other people. It means recognizing I'm a person with a lot of needs. But thanks be to God, those needs are met because I have a father. With him, I have a future. This is what it means to be a child. And this, I think, is why Jesus calls a child as a picture of true humility, true what is truly esteemed as great in the kingdom of God. going to skip this quote for the sake of time, but I'm not very disciplined with time, as you all know, so I added it back in. C.S. Lewis wrote a profound essay called The Weight of Glory. It paints a beautiful picture of what it means to be human and this weight of glory that attends humanity. And in that essay, in the middle of it, he begins wrestling with this issue of what humility itself means and what it means that the kingdom of heaven esteems children as those who are truly great in the kingdom of God. And he begins to reflect, what is it about children that makes them a picture of greatness? And he puts it like this, I suddenly remembered that no one 
can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Apparently what I had mistaken for my whole life to be humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, namely the pleasure of a child before its father or a pupil before its teacher or a creature before its creator. And then a little while later he goes on to please God. Have him as a father and to hear his voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant over our lives, in other words. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, as C.S. Lewis put it. To be loved by God and not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work. Seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, is all part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory, in the sense described, becomes highly relevant to our deepest desires. Glory means good report with God, a response, an acknowledgement, a welcome into the heart of things. And in his presence, experiencing his pleasure over us as the pleasure of an artist in his art, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives, C.S. Lewis says, will open at last. see, a child is one who realizes everything we have is a gift. And that opens to us a, a door of freedom. A door of freedom because when everything is a gift like children, we have nothing in our own resume that we need to protect. We have nothing in our own status to boast in. We have no reputation that we feel the need to defend. No status we have to uphold. When everything is a gift, we can simply thrive under the smile of our Creator. And when everything is a gift, no matter how needy we are, we can find that eagerness to share with others what we've also received. Why? Because we rest secure. We rest assured that like a child, we have a father and we have a future. And it is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. So as Jesus begins to teach disciples to reimagine greatness, he begins with an image, a picture of humility. In the face of a child, one for whom everything is just a gift. But after he explains or demonstrates this picture of humility, Jesus also gives us a promise for humility. 
And the promise for humility in verses 3 and 4 goes something like this. Heaven's rewards are all for the humble. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There is kind of two there are kind of two sides of a coin here. On the one side of the coin a warning and on the other side of the coin a reward. The warning in verse 3 tells us that without humility, without that posture of being prepared to receive everything we need as a gift from the Father above, we will not enter heaven. Jesus' words in verse 3 are shockingly stark. Unless you turn. Unless you become like children, you will never enter heaven. The kingdom of heaven. But if the warning for those who will not turn is stark, the rewards are great in equal proportion. Verse 4 Whoever does humble himself like this child is prepared to receive. Everything that's needed as a gift from above. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, heaven is reserved for those who willingly lower themselves into the servant's mindset. Heaven is reserved for those who come with the humility of a child. Heaven is reserved for those who will say, I'm needy and I need everything to be provided for me. But once we turn away from our pride, once we give up on climbing that ladder which might be leaning against the wrong wall all along anyway, once we turn around and come back to the face of our Father in heaven, He loves us. We discover this. He's not trying to keep us away from greatness. He's trying to teach us the way to that which is truly great. There is a path toward greatness in the kingdom of heaven. There is a path toward the Father smiling and thundering over your life. Well done, good and faithful servant. not found in the way that the world treats greatness. It's just not found with the strength of a warrior who will fight for everything and seek to violently throw others aside in order to get ahead. There is a way to greatness. It's just not found by proving to everybody else that you're the smartest person in the room. 
There is a way to greatness. It's just not found by being the life of the party. There is a way to greatness. It's just different than the ways that the world has taught us to pursue greatness. Whoever humbles himself like this child, receiving all things needed as a gift from the Father above who loves him, with the freedom that comes with that to give generously to others, with the freedom that comes from that, with no longer needing to defend or boast or build ourselves up or make our own image or cultivate our own picture of how great we are, with the freedom that comes with that, with the genuine authenticity of standing before God, with the utter honesty and authenticity of nothing but a child. This is, this is the path to true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. This passage shows us a picture of humility, a promise for humility. And it also gives us a test of humility. See, as we begin to talk about humility as the path toward true kingdom greatness, it raises an important question. How would I know if I am among those that Jesus, that Jesus would describe as humble? How would I know? Well, this passage in verses 5 through 9 provides a test. A test by which we might check our own humility. And the test begins like this in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about both sides of that. But first, I feel like I've got to just kind of do a little bit of apologizing for the fact that I I have a different opinion than your translators on this. Uh, If your translation sounds kind of like mine in saying that the the idea in verse 6 is these little ones who believe in me to sin, causing people to sin. If it says something like that, there's probably a footnote. And if you follow the footnote to the bottom of the page, there is probably a note that tells you that the the language itself in the original language that Matthew's gospel was written in doesn't talk about causing people to sin. It talks about putting a stumbling block in front of somebody. The translators kind of take that idea of a stumbling block and they interpret it as causing somebody to sin and that's how they get there. But the language itself is not... At this point, sin and temptation language explicitly, it's stumbling block language. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that language of stumbling blocks in the New Testament is the language from which we get the word scandalize. And so let me read to you how this passage reads in a newer version of the NIV which says in verse 5, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, 
It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Why is this important? I think it helps us understand a little more clearly what these verses are talking about. How do we test our humility? Well, on the one hand, verse 5 gives us a picture gives us a picture of what humility does. Humility will receive one child. And in receiving even one child, in receiving even one person with, without a whole lot of status, in receiving even one person who has great needs, in receiving even one, Jesus says, when you receive one little one, you receive me. But what's the opposite of that? I think we get off course when we start trying to figure out what does it mean to make a kid sin? But I think it becomes a little clearer when we say, what does it mean to scandalize a child? What does it mean to put a stumbling block in a child's life? Jesus, in no uncertain terms, offers here a severe warning for those who without repentance will continue putting stumbling blocks in front of their life making it harder for them to come to Jesus. It's interesting that the language changes in verse 6 from the language of children to the language of little ones. These, These words overlap in their meaning, but they can be distinguished. The word child, at a literal sense, always refers to children. Although by metaphor we might take it to refer to all of us as children of God or something like that, right? The word little ones is a term that very often in the New Testament refers to people who are viewed as being little in status, the littlest, the least, the weakest, the poorest, the most overlooked in society. And here Jesus has shifted his language just a little bit. To remind us that his heart is not only for those who are, say, 18 years old and younger. But his heart is for all who are vulnerable and in need of protection. And maybe as I bring up that topic, some of us may just think back to headline kinds of news that we've heard in the past 20 years. Or maybe more deeply, we think back to people that we've actually known. And we 
say, if Jesus says things like this, how come the church hasn't always been a safe place for the gospel? To which I say, that's a real problem. And if you take Jesus' words seriously, we need to wrestle with the fact that this is a problem that Jesus takes very seriously. Whoever would put a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. I don't want to play on this image for too long, but you get the idea, right? A millstone was a giant stone used to grind grain in the ancient world. And Jesus is saying, it would be better to be chained to a millstone and to be thrown into a sea than to be guilty before the Lord of unrepentantly scandalizing someone with their gospel. Jesus says it would be better, better for you, better for you to be tossed into the sea with a giant stone around your neck to be guilty before the Father without repentance and forgiveness of scandalizing the Lord with your gospel. And that's why in verses 7 through 9, Jesus drills in a little bit deeper and he uses, let's be honest, severe language. Severe language to talk about turning away from certain kinds of temptation to sin from turning away from certain patterns of behavior. Now, I want to be clear in saying that when Jesus talks about cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye, I want to be crystal clear in saying he is not advocating self-mutilation. Please don't read these verses and try hacking off a hand. Please don't. This is a literary device that we would call hyperbole. Hyper, I can't even say it out loud. Hyper, we need to laugh at some point in the hard sermon sometimes. Uh, hyperbole. Using exaggerated language not to get a laugh, but using exaggerated language to say this is serious. As serious as something that you should chop off your hand over. As serious as something that you should gouge your eye out over. That's how seriously we should take some patterns of behavior. Um, a number of years ago, I was um, at a McDonald's talking with her husband, um, along with another person from our church. Not here today, but um, at McDonald's talking with this guy. And his wife felt 
got you by him? His wife felt tormented by him. His wife felt shaken by his words. there with another brother from this church family pleading with him to take his sin seriously. And maybe predictably one of his appeals was, don't we believe in grace? And look, aren't all sins the same anyway? How come you're being so severe toward me Maybe those weren't his words, but that was his heart. How come you're being so severe toward me? And all kinds of people struggle with all kinds of sin. And bear in mind, it was a long time ago. I don't think I knew how to answer that question very well at that point in my pastoral ministry, to be honest. But if I could talk to him now, I think I would open up Matthew chapter 18. And I would want to begin reading in verse 5. And I would want to tell him the reason we need to be so serious about this pattern of behavior that has left your wife feeling threatened and shaken. The reason we need to be so serious about that is because Jesus is so serious about these kinds of things. stumbling block in front of one of these vulnerable ones who believe in me. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom it comes. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is not my opinion about the seriousness of sins against vulnerable people. This is Jesus' authoritative interpretation seriousness of sins against vulnerable people. Which is why as a church family, when you put these things together, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever puts a stumbling block in front of them. Listen, this is why we love children's ministry here in this church. As we receive one little one in the Lord's name, it's like receiving Jesus. A guest of honor in our presence. And this is why we take child security seriously. Because to put a stumbling block in front of one child, it would be better to have a millstone around your neck and get tossed into the hell of fire. That would be better. This is why we love and we receive and we value and we minister to kids. This is why if you serve in Redeemer Kids on Sunday mornings, even with the littlest of them, 
The ones that you can only hold in your arms are the ones that toddle around and tip over sometimes. As you are serving them, you are doing something honorable, something glorious in the kingdom of heaven. And this is why we take the safety and security seriously. Because we're sort of stumbling around in here. It's a real issue. It's tough. Listen, many of you are involved in educating kids one way or another. Maybe you teach at an elementary school. Maybe you teach at a high school. Maybe you teach kids at home in homeschool. Maybe you're just involved in raising kids or teaching your grandkids. As you do so, as you love even one child in the name of Jesus Christ, there is honor in that. There is greatness, according to Jesus, in loving one child in His name. Like loving Him. And this is why we need to be careful not to sort of stumble around in here. We want to have a heart for people with disabilities. Because to love one person made in the image of God, whatever disabilities they may have, is like loving Jesus. And this is why the church of all places in Aurora should be most concerned with protecting the vulnerabilities of those people in our midst. Because we're fallen and tells us that to receive one little one in his name is like receiving him and who warns us of putting a stumbling block in front of even one vulnerable person that would be God asking us to turn away. This is a test of our humility and I'd summarize the test like this. What is your heart toward the vulnerable? What is your heart toward the vulnerable? As you consider that, you can test your humility. But there's one more thing we need to see in this passage before we wrap up. We've seen, uh, we've seen Jesus' image of humility in a child for whom everything is received. We've seen Jesus' promise about humility, the rewards of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven are all for the humble. We've seen this test of humility. What is your heart toward the vulnerable? But now we need to get a level deeper. And we need to pay attention to what's at the root of humility. Where does genuine Christian humility spring from? And notice how these verses fit together. In verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. There he is back at this issue of Caring for little ones again. But how is Jesus going to teach us? What's going to be at the root of that? If we're following Jesus in this, what's going to be at the root of it? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep? Now, let's pause here. And pay attention to the logic of this story. In the ancient world, sheep were understood to be very valuable and very vulnerable. All kinds of things could attack sheep. They needed protection. They needed a shepherd. 
but they were also very valuable. And in the ancient world, there was no question whatsoever that a child was worth far more than a sheep. So we're making an argument here. Jesus is making an argument from something smaller to something bigger. From the value of sheep to the value of Jesus' church. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone, just one has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, He rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never even went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What's at the root of our concern for the vulnerable around us? What's at the root of genuine Christian humility? What's at the root of that childlike humility? that is truly great in the kingdom of heaven, what's at the root of it is understanding the heart of our Father who, like a good shepherd, will seek out one who has gone astray, who will seek out one who is vulnerable. Our good Father who will seek out one like me. I don't know, maybe you can read this passage as a Christian and not see yourself as a sheep who's gone astray. But I can't think about this story for more than a half a minute before I start to recognize this is how my good shepherd sought me out when I fell. this story before, but I'm going to share it quickly now. When I was uh, a teenager, you know, my, my story of coming to know Jesus was kind of a process, a journey for me. But I remember one moment when it went deep. It went deep for me. I was in a room and Somebody was up front just talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, how Jesus died for our sins. And I had grown up going to church. I had heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so many times. But something was different that day. I can look back now and say what was different is that the Holy Spirit was at work in my heart. But as I was hearing this person explain that Jesus died for our sins, it kind of all at once started to make sense. It kind of went deep like never before. I realized if Jesus had to die for my sins, then my sins were a really big deal. And at the very same moment, I realized he took care of that really big deal for me. And I don't think that guy who was explaining the cross that day even called anybody to repent. I don't think he called us to turn and to come to Jesus like children, but I remember that was the first time in my life when I was like, I am turning away from sin and I am all in with Jesus. And listen, here's the thing. Up to that point in my life, there were so many great resources all around me, but I had been a hypocrite. 
I knew this stuff, but I was living a completely different life. What was going on in that moment? Our good shepherd is willing to come and find one flesh. One teenage Josh who knew a lot of stuff and had been living as a hypocrite. creator of the world came and found me in my moment of need. That's the kind of Lord we know and serve. And as somebody who, like a child, can say, what had I done to deserve that? Nothing. But like a child for whom it's all received... Decades later, and I say, Jesus, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for coming for me. And when we get that in our hearts, the givenness of everything, even our salvation, the givenness of everything, even an opportunity to enter the kingdom of heaven, when we get that, should be a fountain of humility springing up from our hearts and springing out in gratefulness to God and springing out in generous love for others and springing out in in love for the vulnerable and the littlest and the least around us and in eagerness to protect others in need of protection and in eagerness to lovingly pursue others just as the Lord lovingly pursued me. Here we are now at the root of Christian humility. It isn't a matter, even humility, is not a matter of look what I've done. It's a matter of standing near Jesus like a kid and saying, I don't know, he invited me. I don't know, he came and found me. I don't know, he brought me into this life. All by his grace and all to his glory. See, if I were to summarize this passage in Matthew 18, I would summarize it like this. The kingdom of heaven is for the humble. The kingdom of heaven is for the humble. And what should we do about that? Humble yourself, therefore, knowing that he will exalt you. And serve the vulnerable and the littlest and the least of these. Be prepared when needed to protect the vulnerable, the littlest and the least of these. And be prepared to lovingly pursue the vulnerable, the littlest, the least. Just as your Father in heaven lovingly pursued you kingdom of heaven is for the humble. Praise be to Jesus Christ, the only way, the only way, the only way who would humble himself and give himself for us that we might be exalted.
joy and in glory forevermore. At this time, I'd like to 